0: bandwidth for changelog is provided by fastly learn more at fastly.com and we're hosted on linode servers head to linode.com changelog this episode is brought to you by linode our cloud server of choice everything we do here at changelog is hosted on linode servers pick a plan pick a distro and pick a location and in seconds deploy your virtual server draw hardware ssd cloud storage 40 gigabit network intel e5 processors simple easy control panel nine data centers three regions anywhere in the world they've got you covered head to linodecom slash changelog and get twenty dollars in hosting credit
1: Quest for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekba.
2: And I'm Michael Rogers.
1: On today's show, Michael and I talk with Denise Cooper. Denise has been involved with open source since its inception, working with the Apache Software Foundation, Mozilla, and the Open Source Initiative, as well as projects like Drupal and Node.js to define their open source policies. She's currently the head of open source at PayPal. Our
2: focus with Denise was on open source governance. We talked about the history of open source and how the term came about, as well as the tension between corporations and communities.
1: We also talked about how to think about contributing to open source as an employee and the role of foundations in governance and sustainability.
2: You know, we talk about open source sustainability on this show. It's a really hot topic now, but you've been working on open source sustainability, I think maybe before it was called open source. So why don't you give us um, some of that kind of history and backstory through the lens of sustainability?
3: Sure. Well, um, so when I got into open source, it was just kind of the beginning of companies caring about open source. And, you know, there was an early vanguard of companies that either they already kind of had open source as part of their history, um, although maybe it was called free software when that started, or um, they had some vision about why it was going to be important to them. So, you know, the big players were, were Sun and... Um, IBM, who's been in it since, you know, very, very early. And um, there were some companies that were really, you know, against us. So we had sort of classical, you know, light and dark, if you will. So Microsoft was pitted directly against us. And there were a couple of other big companies that, you know, it really was going to threaten the way that they did business. So they were pretty clearly against us. And then there were up-and-coming companies like Red Hat that were just starting out, and we're tiny, but we're you know so deeply based on open source that they cared a great deal, and they were building um, alliances all the time, and so so that's sort of the point at which I came in. There, it, it's important to say that there was you know a good fifteen years, eighteen years of um, people developing software in this way that that would be called the modern era, because of course you know we all know that. In the early, early, early days of computing, everybody shared everything because it was just a hobby, and and they had to share everything because you know it was the only way you could reasonably get anything done. So um, the point at which that all changed was uh, has been classically tied to the Homebrew Computing Club and and Bill Gates' realization that he wanted to charge for essentially access to the sources, although that's not how he framed it. Um, but he wanted to start selling non-source accessible executables and um and he made a very successful business out of that um the modern era of open source wasn't exactly a reaction to that although it's been characterized that way i think some of it was just people who were it was more convenient for them to work in the old-fashioned way because their problem space was new enough that they needed that kind of sharing and i think the the bsd community falls pretty pretty evenly into that um and And, you know, maybe also send mail and bind and all that stuff. But um there were other uh, other things that were definitely starting to head in the direction of money. And you know, money changes everything. so um, so that's about when I came in the door. And in those days, the 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 corporations wanted in on the lift, the marketing lift of the term the the coining of the term open source. you know, Tim had that famous meeting. And uh, they came up with that cool term. And then he used his media arm to make that term uh, interesting to people. And almost immediately, there were people that just wanted to take advantage of the lift the term was getting. And so some existing projects that had been around a long time and were pretty successful, all of a sudden had to deal with that, the the hype factor. And so people were code code dumping, for instance, at Apache. Um, Apache had to change its license and and also some of its practices to make sure that people got it that they didn't have access to the apache brand just because they dumped some code at apache
1: can we talk a little bit about just the the media lifts part of it of how he made open he made sure that people were using the term open source cuz i think people don't necessarily know about that
3: well i don't think he enforced anything i know there was it was sort of the anti free software movement, if you will. And I don't mean that in the sense that they were pitting themselves against free software. I mean, they were using different tactics. So, um, you know, Tim and others like him saw amazing software coming out of the free software movement that was being hampered by, um, the political attachment that the authors of the GPL had. They were basically the, the, in GPL V2, the first page and a half of the license is a political manifesto before you ever get into any legal terms. And um, that made a lot of people uncomfortable in the straight corporate world and uh, also, you know, governments and places like that. And so Tim saw an opportunity to, like, reframe the whole thing under uh, a new term that, first of all, didn't have the inherent ambiguity of free, because in English, free means both liberty and, and gratis, and that was a problem. Um, but also because people got them confused, you know, free as in gratis doesn't necessarily lend value to the, to the endeavor, um, free as in Liberty does. And free, free as in Liberty is very definitely the message that the free software foundation was pushing. Free as in gratis was what was driving people's adoption. And so there was an ambiguity, um, I mean, not all people, but but certainly corporations were picking things up for that reason. So, open source was a little more honest, you know. It was a, it was it, it didn't wasn't ambiguous. I guess would be the answer. So he came up with a term, and then he um, there was a Pearl Conference that was pretty successful that, that he'd been running for a while. And he started it uh, around the time that there was a lot of contention in the Perl community because of the work of ActiveState to create um, a Windows-native version of Perl, um, which was felt like uh, crossing the streams, if you will, of loyalty, since uh, Microsoft was a pretty vocal critic of open source generally, or, or free software generally. So um, he changed that to be uh, the first open source conference, OSCON, and um invited everybody and and used the fact that the publishing industry gave him disposable income to you know push memes to uh get more people thinking about open source he wrote extensively about it um he his blog was well well read his his writings actually his pre-blog his writings were well read and he had a venue to write and um before blogs all of that was rare right and uh all, at almost exactly the same time, we started to see the rise of peer-to-peer computing. It was only maybe a year later that the first peer-to-peer conference happened, um, which it was also one of his. And um, that was both both attempting to address some social ills, which is interesting given the separation or apparent separation between open source and free software. I actually think they're the, they're the same thing, um, just trying to... Express themselves in a different way. But um you know, free software led with social responsibility. But I think most open source people had that bent as well at that point. And so um in the peer-to-peer movement, there was a whole lot of helping political activists and using the uh, lightweight and portable nature of peer-to-peer networks to do interesting things, um, starting with sharing music more widely. So um, there you know famously there there were uh, early sh- music sharing platforms that the music industry really disliked and um one of the really successful ones was nutella which was spelled g n u t e l <laughs> l a nutella was written by um a bunch of people who saw the central architecture of the first experiments in music sharing and decided that a massively decentralized architecture was going to be harder to quash because there would not be a single um, point of failure or single throat to choke. And so they created this endlessly replicating everybody's a server, everybody's a client architecture for music sharing. And and almost immediately, um, Larry Lessig showed up and started talking about copyright problems um, and the confluence of the change in the music industry and the change in copyright or the attempted change in copyright law and open source, they all converged at the same moment. So for a really long time there, every open source conference had a huge component about music sharing and media sharing generally. And that gave Tim a much bigger springboard for his message about open source. So some of it was his cleverness and some of it was just, lucky confluence of of time and place right
2: interesting so so this is happening around the same time that linux is also on the rise um, and so so before we kind of leave this era one one question that i have is that like one of the things that i have to talk about a lot right now is how there are a million reasons why people contribute to open source and legal obligation is is usually not one of them um, the kind of that the kind of legal obligation you have with copyleft. Um, but often people point to, well, in this previous era, the only way to get people to contribute at the same time was you know, this legal obligation. Um, How important do you think that was, being that there were these other forces that, that got people into open source that weren't tied specifically to the legal obligation?
3: You know, I don't remember that that's why Linus chose the license. I think Linus chose the GNU license because it was the only one he knew. Um, Richard did a lot of, of. Richard Stallman did a lot of running around, talking to universities about why you know freedom was important, and he was his style is very sympathetic to you know people of that age and that ilk, and um, a lot of projects from that era are licensed under um, a GNU license because they had heard Richard speak and they knew it better than any of the other options. They didn't really understand what the other options were. But the BSD project, which was the permissive licensing that Bill Joy invented, happened almost – or now I'm in trouble because MIT was working on almost the same thing at almost the same time. Um, but, but permissive licensing is dates from almost the same era as, as the free software licensing. And the projects predate the projects that, that Richard Stallman launched under that new license. And so I think there's always been both sides. Um, I have to say that that you know, I mean, I have a bias because I've been an Apache member for a long time. I think that um, in my experiments for Sun with pretty much every licensing model you could possibly imagine, including all the possible hybrids, uh, permissive licensing definitely drives adoption better. If you happen to be a big a, a deep pocket trying to get non-members of your community to join in. Right, which is a which is a bunch of ifs. But um, there's that situation in the early days of corporate involvement in open source. The very first corporate project was Mozilla, and at you know Netscape at the time was considered a big company, not as big as IBM, but but you know they had a pocket, right? And they were worried when they constructed their project. They did it as a hail mary because Microsoft had just um, you know destroyed their market by distributing uh, Internet Explorer with every copy of Windows for free, and Windows was 98% of the install base at that point. So this is why that whole lawsuit happened about anti-competitive practices that Microsoft was doing. Right. And they'd been doing various other things. It wasn't just open source they were picking on. They were, they were anti-competitive all over town. But this was a really obvious example. So Mozilla, among other things, did a Hail Mary and put their client software that was competitive with IE and out as open source, thinking that that would drive adoption and keep them alive. And it worked, right? But they were so worried that people would not feel comfortable as individual contributors, because at that time, most open source people were were hobbyists and individual contributors. they They basically weighted everything in their license to make to reassure the individual contributor that they weren't going to um harm them while still being fairly legalistic about things like copyright and jurisdiction and you know patents and a bunch of other stuff, right. And and I mean, they were really bending over backwards. And as it turned out, it, they, sh- they needn't have worried because their initial code push was, you know, kind of a mess. It wasn't really um, set up for anybody to use it. And so then, you know, the next thing that happened was um, they got a new owner and the new owner didn't like the way that open source worked. And this was AOL. So they were going to pull the plug because they couldn't get their own stuff in fast enough. And because the community vetting process was frustrating to them. We were in the middle of that lawsuit, and and, uh, Sun decided that it couldn't afford to have that browser go away. And so another Hail Mary thing happened where um, IBM and and Sun's lawyers went and talked to AOL and convinced them to uh, release the IP into a foundation and then to give a little bit of funding. And then Sun and IBM each also gave a little funding, and that's how the team was provisioned to write Firefox
2: interesting
1: you're talking about um copyleft versus permissive licensing and they both started around the same time um how deliberate when you're saying things like um permissive licensing was useful for driving adoption and and still is today um how deliberate were things like the idea that copyleft could prevent anybody from taking your stuff and running with it um sometimes i see well, people was, talk yeah, about it
3: yeah so those you know that those licenses even today all but the AGPL still trigger on distribution of right. the code, right? People don't really distribute code so much anymore because now we have software as a service. So um, as the pendulum swings back and forth between client-server and um, peer-to-peer, right? We're kind of in a peer-to-peer place now, mm-hmm. um, and, and there isn't distribution happening. There's no separation, so most of the requirements that you give back are gone are gone now. Right. Um, except in rare cases and they, they're in places where the software is going to meet space, like the automotive industry. There's still lots of GPL violations going on in places like that because the code is distributed physically in a product, right? There's not, it's not a server oriented thing. Um, so back in the day, the free software people really genuinely felt that they had to compel uh, anyone who touched the code to you know, give back changes. We used to, when we were explaining licensing to corporations, we used to say, so for a free software person, the worst thing that could happen is a piece of code gets used in a non-free way. And for the permissive people, the worst thing that could happen is a piece of code doesn't get used. <laughs> and that, it was really that simple, right? The passionate yeah. people were like, look, we would much rather have gifts of code that people want to give us they're going to be higher quality than gifts of code that people have to give us, and they're going to do the least they ha- they they must in order to fulfill that obligation, right? Yeah. But I think that the free software people were absolutely coming from a place of trying to push the right behaviors. They were just using the stick instead of the carrot.
1: Yep. I hear it used as this example now of, well, if only everybody had been GPL, then you wouldn't have this problem of people using and not contributing back because that was the point, but... Nobody wanted to use that. I don't think that's
3: true. I don't think that's true because (laughs) now we have software as a service, and they don't have to anymore. So, uh, you know, it it, we would have no contribution. on that model. We would have almost no contributions now because nobody would be required to do it or adoption.
2: So, right, and and if and if adoption of the software is one of the ways that you attract contributors, then anything that harms the adoption of the software is going to lead to a lack of contributors. Especially if this this other legal mechanism isn't even there, right?
3: Well, right. I mean, when, when WebSphere, um, which was just uh, Apache's web server wrapped by IBM and turned into a product, which is legal under permissive licensing, when that happened, the whole free software movement was like getting out their popcorn because they thought that it was going to fail or was going to show up the permissive model as, as insufficient. But what actually happened was um, IBM for a long time you know, had their own version and maintained their own version and did all the 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 extra work things that proprietary companies think they have to do. And then at some point, it got to be too painful to have to keep backporting their own version as the open source version was being improved by people that weren't them. So they finally got it that it made sense to send stuff upstream, their own stuff upstream, so that they could stop with the backporting and also with the dealing with conflict when the open source community solved it a different way than they solved it. And they got it that the point was the solution at the end of the day, and not necessarily who wrote it, right? And both of those things were pretty well proven out. So
2: it seems like like there is like a concern on the free software side of people um, like using the software and not contributing back. And there's definitely that view now too. Um, I, I think you, you've described it before as like the. People worried about freeloaders or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. So like,
3: you know, I like, think how that has that
2: changed a- over time? Because I, I like I, the language that people use around it now is very different than than I've heard in the past.
3: Right. Well, I think that the, a lot of the enforcement activities that the Free Software Foundation engages in um, are around people who use the software and extend it and don't give back their their interesting extensions, right? And that's because they have curiosity about how people are using it, and they want everybody to be able to, you know, take advantage of those changes. Um, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the Nordstrom chocolate chip cookie, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, it, there, was, an, there was a there was a recipe that was running around on the web for a while that, and there was a story that went with it, which I think got got debunked. But yeah, the story basically said. You know, somebody at Nordstrom's tried to charge me $14 for a cookie, and it was a really good cookie. And, um, and I got the recipe, and I'm going to share it with all of you because $14 is too much for a cookie was basically how the story went, right? And that's an interesting story because Richard Stallman used to use uh, a cooking metaphor when he was explaining free software. He would say, you know, when you added – that time you added pecans – to the cookie recipe and they came out a lot better and all your friends really liked them and you were able to give them that recipe because there aren't, there isn't copyright protection on the cookie recipe, that's what we're trying to do with software, right? So what they were trying to do, make sure was that if anybody came up with a clever hack like pecans, everybody got to have the pecans and not just the you know People couldn't make money off the pecans and, and adding them to a recipe that everybody else contributed to. So it was a sharing thing and kind of a fairness thing. Um, and it probably still is uh, in their world. But the freeloader problem is is where people aren't contributing both code and support, right? Um, there's different ways to get involved in open source. One of them is if you've done something clever with the code, you give that back. But that's not even always all that desirable because uh, what you did with it might be esoteric. And and not all that applicable to the general public, right? Um, what you did with it might be your secret sauce. Like Google has never given back uh, the bulk of their special changes that they've made to to Linux to make it work for their scale, because they it's tied to the way they do their business. They think that it would be giving up a competitive advantage. They're not required to because their services are offered as a service. It's you know so they've gotten around the distribution problem, but they came up with summer of code and they open source a lot of other good stuff and they you know they try to mitigate the fact that they're never going to or they're unlikely to give up those changes to linux they do give some of them up for the same reason the same upstream reason because it's a pain in the ass to backport right but they don't give up the ones that comp- comprise their secret sauce um So, are they a freeloader? They're not giving up those changes. Maybe those changes would be super useful to everybody else, and maybe um, if they would give them up, you know, the commoditization of search engine technology would mean that we didn't have to deal with AdSense quite so much. But um, on the other hand, they're trying to balance the scales through some of their other activities. So, are they a freeloader, or aren't they? I hear from from Younger open source people, I hear a concern about the flow of money, and um, I think that's a really interesting question. So, some of the modern foundations are really designed to um, attract a lot of money, and and that attraction of money is is then going to be spent on things that you know are last mile projects or things that the group of people that were doing it before the money came in weren't finding time or resources to do, um, that problem of, wow, the group of people that are attracted to this can't get through all the work that, that we'd like to do. Problem isn't a new problem, right? Um, but some foundations, some of the older foundations are designed to run on almost no money. And I think that that was a conscious decision. Like the Apache software foundation runs on almost no money. And the reason that they do that is, is conscious because they, first of all, didn't want to be a deep pocket that was going to attract patent trolls and things like that. They originally, you know, when, when Brian Bellander first talked to me about the desire to create a foundation, it was, you know, obviously before the foundation happened as he's explaining it to me, one of the design concerns was um, a concern about patent trolling. And they had looked at Mitchell Baker's work on the patent piece license, uh, part of the, of the Mozilla license. And they wanted to add that to the Apache license they wanted to do it in a way that made it a nice idea for Apache to become a patent pool because they thought that they needed to have a patent pool in order to protect the different um, entities that were coming into Apache. And as it turned out, that didn't really happen. Um, that Sort of an idea that never got off the ground. Even more recently, the Open Innovation Network is trying to do that now. And um, and it's been kind of a hard sell. And that that has to do with the way patent law works. But, um, you know, the idea that patents could make it in as part of a give was an interesting idea for a while. IBM opened 500 patents at one point. Um, Scott McNeely famously told everybody that the patents, uh, patent situation with uh, Solaris was uh, basically he was indemnifying all the members of the community uh, against any kind of patent action because he owned all the patents on Solaris and, and, um, and they were going to be unenforceable after he open sourced the code.
1: I think this is a, a really good lead-in to Foundations. and
3: Well, especially that Mozilla story is probably the best lead-in yeah. I gave you to that <laughs> that's, topic. A, that's a pretty good story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a piece of that, by the way, Nadia, that I keep, I always want to tell you. So oh, the, great. The piece I, the piece I <laughs> left out of that story has to do with Mitchell Baker. Have mm-hmm. you ever met her?
1: No.
3: You know who she is, though, right? She yes. runs Mozilla. Mm-hmm. She has run Mozilla since it's since the beginning of time. Yep. Um. So she she started as a lawyer, and she wrote the license. And then she got intrigued by the project. She had actually worked at Sun before she went to work for Netscape, so they knew her as a, as a lawyer. And um, she got intrigued. She got a job as the general manager of that division, and, and her title was made Lizard Wrangler almost immediately. And um, so she's doing her job. And then one day AOL buys a company. And they want to get their changes into the browser, right? So they're trying to push her to get them in faster. And she's, you know, sticking with the process that the community has, has agreed to and vetting everything. And they decide that she's the problem, so they fire her. And, <laughs> you know, she had, a, she had a pretty good severance package. She had a, a golden, golden parachute of some kind. So she wasn't worried about money. She went home, she dusted herself off, and she logged on, and she kept running the project and all of the engineers <laughs> kept deferring to her <laughs> more importantly right and to be fair they didn't all work for AOL by then a lot of them worked in other people's companies and they were just contributing right but everybody in that community was was still deferring to her so AOL said oh i see yeah okay we get it we didn't get we didn't understand but we still don't like this so we're going to pull the plug so she called me up one day and she was just panicked she was like they're going to pull the plug and that's when we went we got it together to, you know, strong arm them to create a foundation basically. But, um, think of that, man, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's open source. That's that's (laughs) when I give when I give the talk now to people about, about standing in their power as open source developers, because honestly the influx of new people that have come into open source, the most troubling thing for me hearing, hearing them talk is, um, lack of understanding about where they can push back and that they're going to lose the whole game if they don't continue to push back on the things that will kill open source. So that's why I do that talk now. My, My brief sustainability talk that's got the seven points that I think you really have to focus on when you're thinking about standing up and saying, you know, this isn't right, which people have to be willing to do just like Mitchell did.
0: This episode is brought to you by hired hired matches outstanding people with the world's most innovative tech companies out there hired uses an algorithmic job matching tool in combination with a talent advocate who will walk you through the entire process of finding a better job you might be looking for a more flexible work schedule more money or remote jobs so you can travel and see the world you might be looking for opportunities at facebook mixpanel or squarespace or the many other top tech companies out there looking for engineers on Hired. You and your skills can be a valuable asset to any of these companies. You just have to take the first step. That first step is hire.com changelog. Go there, learn more. Our listeners get a special $600 hiring bonus when you find your next opportunity on Hired. Once again, hire.com slash changelog.
1: I think having that history is so important because what I've seen is a lot of people feeling isolated and not um, not having that sort of long historical lens of being examples of where other people have been able to push back and really understanding that. And I think almost some of that comes from open source being so default right now that people don't think of it as, oh, I have this unusual power. They think this is just sort of what everyone is doing and I'm just going to sort of accept things the way they are and be miserable, Um, (laughs) which is not great, but it's stories like that that make you think, oh, wait, like there's something really powerful about the way we work now and we have a way to leverage that. Um,
3: Well, if you had, if you were, yeah, if you were an engineer before we did all of this work to (laughs) change things or, or I mean, it would be a lot like being, being an engineer now in, in a lot of um, places like Accenture and those places, right? So that think of yourself as a cog in a wheel for a minute. You know, the problem is that, that engineers, they're not they're artists. You know, a good engineer is attached to the creation of the thing that they're building just exactly like an artist is. Paul Graham wrote about this a long time ago, but but we all kind of knew it before that. And not all engineers are that way and not all need to be. I mean, one of the reasons that Microsoft was so opposed to open source, I think, was their developer base, the people that they, when when Steve Ballmer ran around screaming about developers with the sweaty armpits and all that, he wasn't talking about people that were going to get to invent Microsoft products. He was talking about consumers of Microsoft products. And Visual Studio and Visual Basic were basically designed to make the job of programming easier so that non-artists could still do it it was kind of like paint by the numbers in a way right so visual basic is very much um just stringing together other people's work like beads right and so there's two kinds of programmers there's people who invent stuff and there's people who work with microsoft's tools and and that's why it was so um you know dangerous to them Now that was a gross generalization of course there are people who invent stuff with microsoft's tools but there's a really large percentage of the kind of programmer that just show up every day. And they're not bad people. They're working, but they're not motivated or trained up enough to, to really be inventors. And, and open source was founded by inventors.
1: I think that's a a big distinction that's growing now, um, especially as programming is becoming easier for a lot of people and that's sort of the point, right? Is you have these tools that you don't have to go deep into the weeds and figure out how to build
3: things. Um, well, I think that's what abstraction does, right? That's, I mean, we're working on five and six GL languages now, and and um, those abstractions save you from having to, you know, pay attention to pointer math or or any of the things that you that you used to have to really have godlike powers to learn how to use a language well, right? Um, but along with that comes you know the the freestyle of working that we have. The there's a lot of other things that come from us being the one irreducible quotient, uh, right? Like like we we are the thing you have to have in order to make software.
1: Even among, I mean, that's how I felt coming into it as an outsider of just wait a minute. All these people are forming the foundation of software for everyone else, but they seem to not have the leverage that they should um and i think that's the part where even for an open source developer today who's pushing things forward and innovating i think even they still don't recognize their own influence and power sometimes and we- yeah
3: which is why i do that talk <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah which is really important cuz yeah i mean which we're going to call the superpower talk right it's <laughs> it's it has a superhero in it and everything he happens to be a little boy but um yeah it's i think it's it's really important for people to realize that you you got to be uppity because, you know, it's, it's kind of it's like democracy kind of, right? If you want to talk about the real freeloader problem, the real freeloader problem is people not showing up at all and just expecting somebody else to do whatever it is. Um, when we started out, people were just so excited to have an opportunity to work together and get stuff done so much faster and so much more efficiently than was happening in their day job. You know, it was like people used to say things like, look, if my if my employer ever tells me I can't do this, I will quit because this is the only thing that keeps me going. Right. Yeah. And, and they didn't mean their day job. They meant that the you know evenings and weekends they were spending on their open source projects.
2: So. Oh, wow. Um, That's such a difference from now, where like people just flow in and out of contributing to open source in parts in their jobs <laughs> a lot of the time, whereas back then it was like, oh no no no, this is what I do to stay sane on my <laughs> on my night. Yeah,
3: very much so. It, it very much was that way, and part of why I'm been pushing inner source so hard is because I think we're we'll see a time, as with democracy, where it's it's so much an accepted fact that we start to lose ground. On what we what we won for ourselves because we won a lot of autonomy and a lot of choice and a lot of I mean we're seeing it now you know IBM is making everybody come back to work in the office right one of the things we kind of fought for was the right to work wherever the hell we happen to be and also whenever the hell we happen to be right um, because as you know Michael programmers work better at night they do they just do and not all <laughs> but a really large percentage. And so, you know, dragging everybody into the office from nine to five and asking them to code is a ridiculous request.
2: <laughs> yeah. And and well also like a lot of projects are global and so it's it's always night somewhere. So <laughs>
3: Exactly. Exactly. Well we didn't used to have the enough before the internet, we didn't have good enough communications to do global projects, right? So that was baked into open source, that assumption that somebody was always awake.
2: Yeah. So, so m- moving on through this a little bit. Yeah, you're so, trying to get
3: to foundations. I apologize.
2: So, I mean, but... yeah, well, it's okay. No, no, this is all great, so it doesn't matter. Um, but I mean, you've been involved in more foundations than I can count. I mean, just 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 for the audiences to to be aware, you mentioned Mozilla and Apache, uh, the Node.js Foundation. You, you've been a part of uh, since we started. Oh, the yeah, the um, Open
3: Hardware Association. I helped them get off the ground. Uh, the Drupal Association. Um, I've had conversations with Ushahidi, um, I've spent a fair amount of time, I mean, I've, I've, I've done a lot of, you know, sort of, let me just help you with this one little problem with lots and lots and lots of different foundations. Um, before right. there was the Linux Foundation, there was something called the, the um, uh, what was it called? OSDL, Open Source Developer Labs, I think is what it was called, and I helped them out, although, um, you know, they were really set up so that Linus would always have an employer because right. Linus took Linus took a job with a chip manufacturer at one point and um, announced that he was going to put Linux on the chip, and Intel lost their mind. So um, when that folded, uh, they never ever ever wanted to go through that nightmare again. So they and IBM funded that was uh, so that Linus would always have a job.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's a word of warning for future BDFL projects. Is that <laughs> when you have a BDFL and a bunch of companies depend on your project? um, they, you need to be terrified that one of your competitors will eventually hire that person. It's one of the things that the LF still does that they, they make sure that Linus is at an independent entity and not at one of the competitors.
3: Well, and, and, you know, when to, to circle back on companies, um, I always say that there are no open source companies. There are only companies that are good to their open source employees. And if you look at, um, Guido van Rossum, for instance, who in- invented uh, Python, or Rasmus Lerdorf, who invented PHP, both of them had really, really good relationships with their employers for years and years, where they were allowed to still run their project for the best outcome for the project, even th- and you know they got air cover from the company that employed them, and the company employed them because they used that project, but n- but no one could say, wow, Google's really had an undue influence on Python.
2: Yeah. So so getting back to, to what, what I actually want to do. So a lot of these foundations have very different contexts that they came out of. Like, when when does a project need to start a foundation or need to go into a foundation? Like, what are the constraints that it's under where it needs that kind of institutional support? Versus, you know, like, you know, the, the majority, like the 99% of other projects that are happening in open source that um, just aren't at the point where they've had to get that yet.
3: They're just on GitHub somewhere, yeah. So, so in the early days, the foundations were another way to convince people that you were serious about open sourcing and you weren't going to try to control it over much. So there were a lot of attempts in the early days to leverage open source by big companies that failed, like uh, Apple, when they came out with uh, OS X, that was based on the mock kernel, which is a variant of BSD. and. They made a commitment to the mock community that they were going to, you know, continue to open, run an open source project that took advantage of all of the R&D that they were doing to make um, the Apple OS work better and better. And they did hire Jordan Hubbard and set up a really nice little playground for them outside the firewall of Apple, but they never made the step of actually doing their development, which would have been unimaginable for them, um, over that wall. So they kept throwing tarballs over the wall every time they, you know, did something clever. But unfortunately, that completely off the people that were working on the on the public project and trying to solve some of the same problems. Because it'd be like, you know, I'm building a snowman. I'm building a snowman. I've done the body. I've done the chest. I just did the head and I'm about to put the facial features on it. Oh, crap. Here comes a bigger snowman from over the wall. That's going to kill my snowman because it's another way to solve that same problem. And Apple's, Apple's tarballs are always going to win. Right. So, um, there's a way to not do it. Right. Uh, if Apple had created a foundation and made a commitment to working within that foundation, um, to build their product in addition to everything else, that would have been unimaginable for them. But there are a lot of projects that went, okay, let's make it a foundation that way everybody will, you know, anybody that wants to can come in and work hard and gain reputation in this thing and, and become a leader. And um, several of the umbrella foundations like Apache were set up explicitly to be transparent uh, scrum grounds or Scrimmage grounds for new um, implementations of emerging standards. So, you know, after the web server was was a done thing, um and Apache was you know wondering about how to be relevant. Um, Brian was really big on, well, let's let's do Java. Java's the newest thing since sliced bread. They're going to need to do some open source. let's let's make it the home for Java. Um, Sun ended up not wanting to use that home, but at the same time, XML was happening, and, and IBM and, and Sun were kind of fighting over who was going to lead the XML implementation. There was SOAP, and there was something called WSDL. You don't know about WSDL anymore because nobody uses it. Everybody used SOAP. Not that SOAP was great, but at the time, it was better than what there was before, right? And um, <laughs> But that argument, that that battle happened transparently. At Apache, anybody that cared about that could watch it happen, which is different than standards bodies where everything happens behind closed doors by design because no none of the companies want anybody to see the political machinations they're going through to get what they want, right? So it was a democratization, if you will, of the de facto standards process. And that could only happen at a foundation. It, the, you had to create a neutral ground where where the dinosaurs could come for water as as uh, one of my slides generally shows, right? But these days it's, it's a lot different. Uh, the reasons that you might come under a foundation um, are are different as well. So, um, well, let's see. Let's We might as well talk about Node since both Michael and I work on Node. Node ended up at a foundation because we were trying to heal a fork. The community was rebelling against the trademark holder. Um, because the, it was set up as a BDFL organization. And um, it, the thing about that people don't understand about BDFLs is they're called for life for, for a reason. You, you can't pass that baton. There's a lot of attempts to try to pass those batons, but functionally, people are at least partially organized around the personality of that individual or at least his creation, her creation. And they, they can't make the transference. So you don't get to just nominate another BDFL and then another one when that one doesn't work out. And that, that had kind of happened at, at um, Node. There, was, there were a lot of disagreements. There was a lot of um, desire on the part of the community to move forward. And the trademark holder couldn't keep up with the pace of interest in, in change because they hadn't resourced it to deal with the growth that was happening. Because it wasn't part of their direct line of business. It's just something they happened to own. And, and so getting it to a foundation felt like the only way that the fork could be healed and the trademark holder could feel comfortable that, you know, anarchy wasn't going to reign fundamentally. Because they were, they were wedded to a certain amount of control. And so giving up the control, they felt like they needed some structure. And, and that's how it ended up there. It's such I feel like I'm
1: hearing like a lot about um foundations are and especially historically meant to be a governance mechanism, right? And I think there's sort of a, a misinterpretation of foundations sometimes as the way way to raise money in itself or pay a maintainer to work on a project. But it sounds like historically open source foundations, as you had said earlier, are often designed to run without money or are really meant to bring transparency or, or the governance aspect to a project.
3: Yeah, the deal about the money, um, I, you know, I have to say I've, I've spoken out against pay to play boards, um, which upsets Jim Zemlin. Every, I think every time I say it, Jim Zemlin thinks that, you know, another kitten has died in heaven, right? Um, because he is genuinely trying to do the right thing. He's not a, he's not a bad guy and his conceptions of what's wrong in open source are just as valid as anybody else's. He saw, one of the things he really saw was um, an inability to attract top talent because they just couldn't get paid the same scale to work on foundation work because the foundations didn't have that kind of budget. Now, Apache really kind of only spends money on sysadmins and I think they do pay them pretty close to scale. Mozilla had the same problem, actually, that Jim the identified. They were losing their top talent to, um, say, fellow travelers, not so much competitors of fellow travelers uh, like Google. And because Google, you know, was, was the new hotness and they were sucking up all the talent in town. But, but um, Mozilla really felt like they needed to make a change in order to be able to support industry competitive uh, salaries. And it wasn't because they didn't have enough money because they were, you know, they, because of their deal with Google, they had lots of money by most standards. Um, And even today they have a pretty, pretty solid endowment, but nevertheless, they went through all of the work to create a tax bearing entity, uh, Google or Mozilla.com that was completely owned by Mozilla.org. And this was kind of new thinking on their part because it was challenging the way that the Tax authorities like to see things done, uh, but they were trying to do the right thing. They were they were saying, "No, we'll pay taxes on our on our profits, and we'll generate profits, and that will allow us to hire people and pay them, you know, what will keep them involved with us." And it was challenged eventually by the service, and they they won in that examination. And so, you know, I guess that's a viable model now. Although there's a whole lot of moving parts if you wanted to replicate it. But but Jim's idea was, you know let me streamline fundraising Uh, and he, he inherited OSDL, which the, the buy-in cost to be part of OSDL was pretty high and it wasn't clear what you were getting for that money. And so a lot of his um, funders were really balking at the, the high price. Um, So, you know, he re, he reimagined all of that. And part of it was, I'm going to hire the very best people that I can to share services And I'm going to charge, you know, discounted rates to um, projects that come in and need those services. But the people are going to get paid, um, you know, industry standard rates because I'm going to raise money on each of these little foundations that I spin up. And he was was aided in this quest by the fact that the whole idea of an open source foundation became controversial to the government because – when they started out, we looked like, you know, raggle-taggle bands of, of hippies, right? And 10 years, 15 years on, all of a sudden, there's huge value being created in these foundations, and it's not clear who's getting taxed on that. They're wondering if there shouldn't be some taxation on that. They're, they're you know, trying to figure out if they made a mistake create, allowing open source foundations to happen. So they stop making new ones. And that didn't. There weren't any less, any fewer projects that wanted to get there. So all of a sudden, it became very difficult. Where before it was like a two-week process, maybe four at the most, to become a nonprofit in open source. All of a sudden, it was taking years. And and Jim was able to streamline that for people because he he and his lawyers figured out how to spin up new foundations under their umbrella. Apache went the other way. There's only one Apache foundation, but you can be a product, project under that foundation. And there are a couple of others we should probably mention. There's there's um, one that came out of the free software movement um, called the Software Conservancy. And um, there are a lot of projects that, that are there. And um, uh, God, Michael, I've just lost the fourth one. Do you remember?
2: <laughs> I mean, I'm there's sorry. there's a bunch of other ones. I mean, there's uh, the SSF, there's the Software Freedom Law Center, there's the, oh right, uh, the Eclipse. I so, forgot
3: about them. Um, well, no Eclipse. Yes, but yes, but no. Um, <laughs> Eclipse was built for a different reason. Uh, it, it it was originally organized around a, a project that IBM hmm. um, created for uh, an inter- development environment for Java. Mm-hmm. And it was an anti-competitive move or, or yeah, competitive move against uh, Sun because Sun had an open source project that was an IDE, and it was important to um, own the IDE market, I guess. So IBM came up with this other idea, and that was what Eclipse Foundation was about. Now you're right that Mike Malikovic has has moved it into a space where there are a lot more than just that there, and and all of it, not all of it is Java anymore either. So yeah, I guess maybe they are but uh, it's almost like neighborhoods, like a certain kind of person is a tenant at the eclipse foundation versus the software, um, uh, conservancy, right. Software freedom law center is not actually a home for software. It's a home for legal advice. Um, right, but right. the FS, but the FSF has been, and maybe was the first foundation that accepted, um, you know, other people's projects and their way of running things is very particular. Um, you're basically trusting the free software foundation to run your project for you know forever forward and in fact they made an assumption early on that if you put your code there you were going to accept whatever changes to their licensing scheme that they created and um that was you know that's that's a big ask right you're really giving up control completely you're giving up your your um, copyrights to the free software foundation most of the corporate-started foundations had to split hairs there and came up with some exotic ways to say we want to act like the copyright holder but but you wrote this stuff so you're you're also going to have some copyrights
0: This episode is brought to you by Bugsnag. Bugsnag is mission control for software quality. And on this segment, I'm talking with James Smith, co-founder and CEO of Bugsnag, about the core problem they're solving for software teams and why you should head to Bugsnag.com changelog to test it out with your team. Let's start with, um, you mentioned you and Simon. So you, you guys obviously at one point didn't have this company, right? So as founders, as engineers, you got to a problem. What was that problem and why does bugsnake exist?
4: Uh- Simon and I, my co-founder, I met in college. We went off to build software for other companies. I ended up in a startup. He ended up in enterprise software. And we had the same problem in both of these companies. When things break, it's really hard to figure out how badly they're broken, who's impacted, and what to fix first. So we both had this problem ourselves. So we decided, hey, why is no one doing a good job of fixing this problem right now? So very much Bugsnag was born out of uh, scratching our own itch, as they say, one thing that we find all the time is that there's this tension in software teams or in product companies where you want to deliver new features to your customers or you want to build cool new stuff but at the same time you've got to fix bugs because no matter how good a coder you are you're going to introduce bugs but there's no clear definition of where to set that slider should i Uh, be fixing bugs now or should I be releasing features? And so this tension exists, I think, in all product teams or software teams. If you don't have a tool like Bugsnag, it's very difficult for you to figure out where to spend time. And so that's the idea here, is we're trying to help teams understand whether they should be building or fixing, because there's a bit of a delicate balance between both. So
0: if your team is unsure of how to spend their time building or fixing, Give BugsNag a try. It's free to get started with a 45-day extended trial exclusive to our listeners. Head to BugsNag.com changelog.
2: So trying to pull this back a little bit from the history and get it more into um, like what these foundations actually offer to projects and so why you would want to spin one up or join one, I think that there are there are some huge disparities in, in just what these foundations do, for instance, right? Like uh, like you mentioned that, that Apache runs on, on basically the money. Uh, which is great if, if your project doesn't need money if it <laughs> but like one of the, the reasons why people like these member organizations is because what they What they do with the money is they don't hire developers Like you still want individual contributors to drive the project but they offer a bunch of other support like Marketing and PR that you get when you're trying to go up against other proprietary entities, right? And that's just something that Apache doesn't offer and if some of the projects inside of Apache have interests behind them that are sort of competing over those spaces, right? so you get a little like with a member organization. You definitely need to have a wall between the project and the board because the board is the corporate interest, <laughs> right? Like it's a pay-to-play board, and you well, can't have them send it stick in their thumb in the project. <laughs>
3: that's how that's how Jim has it set up. There are other possible setups, right? That's, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. He's, well, there 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 are infinite possible setups. He's using
3: <laughs> board membership to drive uh, to drive fundraising.
2: Right, right. but 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 the, but also, but there is not a connection between board membership and for lack of a better term, project ownership, right? So you have this wall between the project governance and the board governance, and the board governance is mainly dealing with like the institutional aspect. Whereas like I, I think in Apache, because developers come up through the process because they're not doing all this other stuff, the board is staffed essentially by developers and they and they do make certain executive decisions about the projects, right?
3: Well, only in extreme cases, actually, almost when, when, you know, 99% of the time as appeals come to them to deal with issues, they turn it back to the, to the project committee. Yes. yes. But the, the, but the projects
2: also operate under a process that is pretty strict and the interpretation and how that process is written is owned by the board, right?
3: Yes, that's true. Um, But getting them to take the kind of action that you're talking about, like, like, you know, troublesome, troublesome member of my project, right? <laughs> this, this person on my project is really, is really causing, you know, is really creating a lot of problems for the whole project and everybody's mad at them and we can't figure out how to get rid of them. The the board answer would be, that's your problem. <laughs> that's your problem, right? Um, that they only get involved in the, really the most extreme cases or if that person is actually on the board, they would deal with it because they are the project, right? But uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, can be vexing actually the extent to which they want to turn it back to the project and and a lot of the um, it, it's been very successful for projects that are focused on technology and have few political vectors. But the minute that, that politics enters the picture, it becomes kind of ugly and. Um, you know they have a couple of times stepped in and restructured a project that they thought was otherwise healthy like had a lot of contributors but but there was you know some kind of poisonous aspect to the project brewing they mm. they have put in almost like a special master who is nominated by the board to get the project back on track but we're talking a lot less than less than 1% of their projects have had that problem Right. So it's, they definitely, it's a last resort thing. They really don't want to get in and do that partly because they're all volunteers and they all have day jobs too. Right. Mm-hmm. So, right.
2: Right. So, so, but I, I want to get into kind of the future of open source a little bit. And I think that I know how to, how to bring us there. It's like, so when, in the iojs days in, in in the fork and we were considering kind of where where we could go like could we put this into a different foundation could we go into apache um you know, were we going to need a new unique foundation for you know the 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 healed fork or, or just for iojs before the offer was kind of on the table to to come back together um when we started evaluating all these places, what one of the troubles that we had was that we were a very modern project. We were really built in this kind of GitHub era. We had all these new people coming in, and we had a very new governance process. I mean, it was you know less than six months old, and we had been iterating on it a lot, and it was wildly successful. But we were not confident enough that what we had written down at that time <laughs> was was not going to need to evolve and change. And it and it definitely has had to evolve and change over the last few years. And one of the the constraints that um a lot of like basically every other umbrella that we would consider um, had was that we wouldn't really own that process. Like we would have to change, you know, that process, a lot of the parts of that process and and the governance rules around that for the entire institution. And so we weren't really able to, to take on the kinds of experiments that we that ended up kind of making this very new governance model that we have at Node.js now. And so if we're looking at like where new projects go, um, like, I mean, I, I think just in the last few months, Apache said that you can even have your project on GitHub. <laughs> so like if you want to use new tools, if you want to use new governance structures, like um, there are constraints with some of these other foundations. Um, and, and then moving away from there, like if you if you have all of this tooling happening in the ecosystem, if you have all this new governance going on in the ecosystem, do you need to, to join a foundation anymore? Or do we need umbrella foundations that you know literally just do are not in like even less involved in the project than they are today?
3: Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, um, the Drupal Association was having some problems um, l- last year not not the problem that recently happened, but but more um, funding problems. And, and the association was having uh, because they make their money from a conference, and so they're subject to the vagaries of the conference business, right? And so Jim was was helping us think through how to f- fix that. And one of the things he was saying was, why are you hosting your own development environment when there's GitHub? So for him, it's a decision of, of cost, right?
2: It's a, it's a liability. It's not an asset, right? He,
3: but he was unwilling to take a project on that didn't host itself on GitHub. So he's made a tooling choice as well.
2: Right. Um, there, there, there have been projects that were brought on in that time uh, that, that use non GitHub tooling. I think that the distinction, though, is that they they don't have tooling that they entirely have to own the maintenance and hosting of. <laughs> right.
3: Right. Well, that was everybody had to do that back in the day because SourceForge, although it existed, was you couldn't really <laughs> run a project on it. So, um, I think going forward, there's a general consensus that. Spinning up a thousand foundations is probably not going to keep keep scaling, um, partly because it's so hard to do now. Um, and continue even though that that has eased a little bit, it still comes up as an issue because you know it looks like value that's not being taxed that that's not the last time we're going to have that conversation probably. So it depends on how you define umbrella. So Apache thinks it's an umbrella. Um, Linux Foundation also thinks it's an umbrella. That each of the Linux Foundation foundations are technically separate. They have separate bylaws. They have separate articles of incorporation. But they're under the Linux Foundation family, if you will.
2: Also, some of those individual foundations are their own umbrellas as well. <laughs> so right. It gets so complicated. If,
3: if Jim is fond of pointing out that those foundations can leave the, leave the nest anytime. And you know, they lose some things, but but they might also gain some things um by doing that. And I think if he de- if too many of them do that and he becomes known as a foundation mill, then he may have trouble if it turns out that the the tax authorities are <clears throat> not wanting more foundations. And then there's the whole question of the locus of the foundation. So the vast majority of open source foundations exist in the u s. And that's because, most of the really deep pocket funders also exist in the US and they get tax breaks if it's a nonprofit. And also, it's relatively easy to start a nonprofit in Europe, but there are different rules. Like um, in some countries, you have to uh, be very careful with your accounting and basically spend most of the money that you earn every year.
1: So there's the question of uh, whether to spin up your own foundation or not. And I think we talked about that. And then there's also the question of why join an umbrella foundation now at all if you're not especially i think if you're not let's say a node-sized project what does apache or linux or any of the existing umbrella foundations have to offer let's say a smallish scope project on github with maybe one or two maintainers that just kind of wants to find a way to keep it going
3: right well a smallish scope project probably wouldn't do well in apache um, because there's there's an assumption of um, ongoing contributorship that isn't just you. If you were looking for additional contributors and it was sufficiently interesting, then it might make sense, right? Um, the, the tiny projects that Jim has been raising funds to help, like like um, the one that caused heart bleed uh, a couple of years ago, that's an example of of one- and two- and four-person projects that were wildly successful and became the underpinnings of the internet but never grew to additional contributorship and the the people that started it are aging or um, otherwise unable to continue and and it's problematic now because the internet rests on some of these things right so should they have joined a foundation maybe so you know now now there's a foundation trying to retroactively help them without them actually being part of the foundation and it's a little bit cat herdy you know um, I think that a middling-sized project can totally just live on GitHub. I think that companies need to not create foundations to hold their IP. Microsoft did that at one point about five years ago, maybe four years ago. And there were some other companies that did it because it looks attractive because you can create a safe harbor and put all of your liability in that foundation, Right. But it's nobody, you're not fooling anybody about what you're trying to do there. Basically, what you're trying to do is have your cake and eat it, too, and nobody's going to love you for that. So um, when PayPal asked me if they should create a, a, found, a holding foundation for their open source assets, I said, oh, hell no. Um, and I, I think that it, that's been proven as a bad answer. Um, but for an individual project, I think you start on GitHub, you see how much traction you can gain. If you get to the size where, you know, big, deep pockets are starting to come calling, you're probably going to find yourself pushed into a foundation, if only because they're more comfortable that the legal procedures are somewhat regularized that way. Um, A lot of the way that we do things uh, in open source, it comes down to Sun Legal and um, IBM Legal coming up with things that made them comfortable. So most of these licenses rest on copyright law, Making and copyright law is a good good choice because um, there are almost immediate remedies if you can find infringement. Like you can stop software from shipping if you find that, where a, a patent um, based complaint can go on for months or years, and and the remedy may just be I'm going to sh- make you show your patents to these people, which is not the same as you can't sell it anymore, right? So that's copyright law is is what they rest on. But U.S. copyright law, if you have to go to court, you have to assemble all of the people who have any claim to copyright and get them to, at least the majority of them, to agree to your line of defense. And that's not going to be easy if you haven't already aggregated the copyrights. So that's why Apache does copyright aggregation, because IBM wanted to play there. They paid for all the legal work to set up Apache, and of course they set it up to meet their needs, right? Modern projects are asking whether things like a contributor agreement, which creates the copyright aggregation, is a, is too much of a barrier to entry because they're optimizing for contribution instead of optimizing for um, long term legal viability. But you got to remember that IBM, you know, famously stuck through a lawsuit that they they really probably were the only house at the time that had their resources to get through it, um, there was a challenge to, to Linux and actually kind of to Unix, but mostly to Linux uh, called the SCO lawsuit, where a single company was claiming that they owned a bunch of stuff and they were going to sue everybody else for um, using their ideas. And, you know, if you know about the, the Unix wars, establishing who owned Unix is a pretty tricky thing to do. But IBM, instead of settling that suit, instead of doing anything else, actually saw it all the way to its bitter end. At least we think it's done. And um it it was proven that SCO didn't have a claim and that Linux is, you know, safe to use. Right. And and that kind of legal work is only possible if you can actually, you know, pay to have the provenance checked. Or you've already aggregated the copyrights. So they they actually spent an enormous amount of money on figuring out exactly who owned all the parts of Unix and Linux and all the other Xs and, and, you know, making it clear that SCO's um, claim was spurious, right?
2: So to... Bring us back and push towards wrapping up a little bit. So we, we talked a bit about why it's now just more important than ever to increase adoption and then get contributors, right? And I think one of the things that you're seeing in these new communities as pushback is that what they what they are feeling and what they really understand is that they need to retain contributors. And, and any barrier to that really has to meet a pretty high bar of scrutiny. Um, and a lot of these well,
3: – Well, we don't know yet what the legal challenges to all of that are going to be. It's going to be well, interesting we- to see.
2: Right, right, but that's so. So that that's like such a, a hundredth order problem from the problems that they're dealing with, right? <laughs> and and in particular, if you're talking about you know establishing who wrote the work with these with these utilities, we would need them from day one. And and in reality, we have them with zero of day one software, right? <laughs> like nobody starts with the CLA anymore, um, and so it's really hard for. I think a lot of these new communities to get their head around, like that this is such an, not that this isn't a real legal argument or that this isn't going to be a real challenge, but that it's important enough to sacrifice their short term sustainability um, for some, you know, for if they succeed and they become a legal problem for IBM, <laughs> then why do they care, right?
3: Well, there are a couple of really famous projects that are not aggregated, and one of them um, was a challenge to j2e java enterprise edition um and that software that the guy mark Fleury was his name um he was an accent employee he was very concerned that he was going to get sued personally and um his lawyer told him not to aggregate copyrights because it was the only strategy that um that would confound a lawsuit because there was no target
2: this was the linux model for a long time too right
3: well, that's not. They didn't do it intentionally. They did it because they thought it was going to be a barrier to contrib- contribution. I think, um, okay. or they just, or they just didn't think of it, right? Um, I think initially it wasn't, it wasn't a high order issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. The whole contribution question didn't really come into uh, being until about the time that um, Mozilla pushed out. Their project or Apache was started. They they were started within a couple of years of each other, and, and was very much on everybody's mind at that point. And it might have just been as simple as IBM, you know, the largest IP holder in the world for software, going, "Wow, this is a whole new model. We got to get our hands on this." I don't know, um, mm-hmm. but I do know that that uh, it has been the case that it's been useful to have some of that information on projects as the legal challenges come in. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm immensely encouraged because there's now going to be a formal, it seems, a formal legal challenge uh, to the, the GPL that, you know, we just found out the GPL was a good enough contract that they were willing to let it be tried in court in the U.S., which is um, every other time in the U.S. that that's happened, it's been settled out of court. So that's kind of exciting. So, I, I mean,
2: I guess just the thing that I wonder is, like, so we're thinking about this from the point of view of these open source projects uh, on a somewhat individual basis. And I think that we we have an assumption that, you know, over time it gets more adopted and it becomes more of a target and, and da, da, da. But if you actually take like a modern application and and work through it and look at all of the different software that created this project and what its kind of legal standing is, you're the idea that you would be able to enforce any of these mechanisms for even half of the stack is is impossible, right? Like we we've moved to this model of all of these different small projects making such a huge small network of dependencies that it's very hard for, I think, a, a lot of individual project maintainers to see like what use is it actually going to be to a person with an application being threatened with the legal, threatened with the legal challenge that I did this thing that is going to put off a lot of my contributors, right?
3: Well, but then you see people who are getting sued for um, for stealing uh, trade secrets and stuff between industries, right That stuff expresses itself in open source too. so you know there there's it's a thornier problem than you think, but I understand mm-hmm. the reordering of the issues based on what feels like the most important thing um, is is you know probably appropriate, but it may be it may be a bit painful down the line. That's all I'm saying. We just don't know yeah. yet. Um, is it going to be a fair trade-off? Well, there's so many projects, certainly they're not all going to simultaneously come under, um, you know, any kind of legal action. So, at least hopefully not. So, it probably is worth the risk, but um, but it is a calculated risk. That's, that's all I'm saying, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, contributors to projects like Node realize that. But, I, again, when I said at the beginning, money changes everything. Um, most of this stuff came up around the money, not around the contribution, right? Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think, as with everything, if you follow the money, you can understand the motivations for things. So,
2: yeah, yeah. I think that people tend to think of money as being directly flown into the project, but money is flying around all the time. And if you <laughs> if you don't think about how it's influencing stuff, it'll it'll just sneak up on you, right?
3: Right. Yeah. And it takes a lot of vigilance to keep that from happening and keeping the same people involved. So the BDFL model, I think, is pretty pretty difficult to sustain for any length of time, right? Because people get old and you can't pass on that, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, you really can't. We've seen it t- tried many times and it just doesn't work.
2: They, they get bored quicker than they get old, but yeah.
3: <laughs> right. Well, there's been some hacks on it. Like the Debian people you know, vote in a, a leader every year, um, which is kind of an interesting thought because there was a BDFL, but then there's also a Debian leader because the BDFL has gone, but he's also not been involved for a really long time. So the consensus model seems like it's winning just because there's no way to live long enough to keep the BDFL thing going. Although some of the most powerful software is still BDFL software. So All of these, you notice that there's two ways to go always in open source or or in in this whole conversation. There's free software and open. There's permissive and and, uh, uh, inherited. There's there's uh, BDFL and consensus. There's you know foundation and not foundation. It's 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 really interesting how there's always two choices and just like seeds in in a forest both ways work for somebody some of the, some percentage of the time you know what i mean like the growth happens out of all of those possible avenues and we got to remember it seems like 20 years seems like a long time it seems like a long time to me but really it's just a blip like there's going to be a lot more time that people try on these different structures and you know there's a bunch of people who think that open source is doomed because software will change in a way that means that it isn't created this way anymore and it doesn't matter. But I still think that that the moment in history that we took advantage of to create it and, and bring it this far, you know, that it was worth doing because it, it, I think it describes the ideal conditions for creating the best possible software. It's pretty clear that the ideal conditions, um, that, you know, Apple is like the ex- exception that proves the rule. It, what what it costs them to do things the way they do them is kind of crazy. And I think the reason that they still exist, I mean, Microsoft is having to change the way they do things now to become more open. Apple continues to buck that trend. But I think the only reason that they can do that is that they've got, you know, the monopoly of the hardware and the software going for them. And, you know, a fandom following that will will eventually erode. It has to. Cause that's what happens. So. It's, it's just, I'm so happy to have spent the time that I spent supporting this work and, and trying to connect the dots where it looked like a dot needed connecting. Um, and I really had a good time talking to you guys about it, too. I don't know if it's unintelligible yeah. still or if it helps to hear these no, stories. Good
2: it's been perfect. And that, that was kind of a perfect wrap up as well.
3: <laughs> hey, I do what I can.
2: <laughs> it has been great, Denise. Thanks for coming up.
3: Yeah. Thanks for chatting with us. Oh, of course. Of course.
0: Thank you for tuning into this episode of request for commits. If you enjoy the show, share it with a friend, read us Apple podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors, Linode hired and Bugsnag. Also thanks to fastly, our bandwidth partner, Head to to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to linode.com changelog. Check them out. Support this show. Request for Commits is hosted by Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers. Editing is done by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more shows just like this at changelog.com or by subscribing to our weekly email at changelog.com slash weekly. Thanks for listening.